Welcome to a new edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we are broadcasting from the 47th annual meeting of the Society for the Study of Midwestern Literature, which meets every year at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Today we will be listening in on a panel discussion entitled Defending the Revolt from the Village, Reinforcing Sinclair Lewis in the Age of Trump. The main speaker is Professor Jeffrey Swenson of Hiram College in Ohio. Responding to Professor Swenson's remarks are Marcia Noe of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and myself, John Lauk. Now let's turn to our panel discussion. Okay, welcome everyone to the uh, panel uh, defending the revolt. Um, we're going to be talking, my name is Jeff Swenson. Um, I'm a, a, a professor of English at Hiram College in Ohio. Um, this is Marcia Noe and uh, you want to introduce I'm Marcia. Yeah, I'm and Marcia. he's John. And he's John. <laughs> um, and the, the way this is going to go today is I'm just going to present uh, my paper of fiery defense of the revolt from the village and then we're going to have some um, wonderful spirited yet uh, civil debate about uh, what's moving forward. So um, I'll just begin. I'd like to begin my defense of the revolt from the village, the critical interpretation of primarily Midwestern small towns first posited by Carl Van Doren in a 1921 essay in The Nation by conceding, waving the white flag, and simply giving up. Because even if I were to convince all the scholars in this room about the validity of the revolt, and as a critical frame, if I were able to flip John Lauk and Marcia Noe from their well-constructed and conceived arguments, and if all literary theorists in America and abroad preached the revolt chapter and verse, it still would be a lost cause. I say this because the trend that Van Doren recognized that of authors like Sinclair Lewis, Sherwood Anderson, and Zona Gale writing against a homogenized provincial literary representation of the small town established in the late 19th century in local color writing. That, that revolt has failed to catch hold in the American popular imagination. Instead, the image of the small town as beatific pastoral place, a stand-in for a perfect, simple America, largely free from strife and representing the American man, has become the standard image of America worldwide, from Florida to California to Paris, Tokyo, and even Beijing. The evidence that the revolt is largely forgotten in the general discourse lives at Disneyland, in Disney World, on Main Street, USA. For the few of you who haven't been, Main Street USA is the first attraction any visitor at Disneyland will see. A street fixed in idyllic small-town 1900s America, complete with Victorian, Italianate, and Edwardian architecture and detailing, and where you can, according to the Disney World website, quote, have a grand old time mingling with colorful citizens who spread the cheer of yesteryear with delightful antics and song. These grinning characters consist of a white man in a vest and a top hat. Uh, his sash says he's the mayor. And two white women, one a suffragette, again, we know her by her sash, in Edwardian gowns, broad hats, and white gloves. This, this simplistic vision of, how this, of the small town is what most people think about when you talk about Main Street. 
not a notion of Lewis's vision of the same. The Disney version of Main Street hasn't faded from our collective memory. It's entrenched. And that's the vision of Main Street that is perpetuated time and time again in popular culture, a simple place of Meredith Wilson's The Music Man and Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon. That's the image, an idyllic, trouble-free, simplistic town that's stamped in the public consciousness, and all our critical squab squabbling is likely to do little to unmoor that conception. Despite that fact, I do believe in the importance of discussing the merits of the revolt as a literary construct, particularly as the debate has significance in the current political climate. Before we get there, however, I'd like to first examine the foundations of the revolt, particularly the, in the local color writing to which it responds. Then I'll discuss and question some of the recent critiques of the revolt, including John's and Marsh's. Finally, I'd like to move on to discussing some of the key texts of the revolt, including Anderson's Winesburg, Lewis's Main Street, and Gale's Miss Lulu Bet, hoping to prove that the only revolt that can be discounted in these texts is the one that neglects a great part of the reading, and persuading you all to eye suspiciously Main Street, USA. Part of the reason Van Doren embraced the Lewis, Anderson, and Gale novels he did in his initial review essay was because of how they broke from a long, tired vision of the small town depicted in the short fiction of the last half of the 19th century, a saccharine and homogenous vision of stock characters. In the stories written during the local color movement, beginning with Harriet Beecher Stowe's A New England Sketch, later titled Uncle Lot, the small town had long been celebrated as pastoral, the stories composed about it quaint and nostalgic. Stowe's story was part of a relentless tide of local color fictions that filled magazines with quaintness. As Van Doren characterized it, while the farm was sometimes worthy of a full depiction, the village was largely untouched in the literary imagination. Oops, I gotta go back. The village, quote, the village seemed too cozy a microcosm to be disturbed. There it lay in the mind's eye, neat, compact, organized, traditional. The white church with tapering spire, the sober schoolhouse, the smithy of the ringing anvil, the corner crockery, the cluster of friendly houses, the venerable parson, the wise physician, the canny squire, and on and on and on, unquote. We can think about Van Doren's pronouncements about the literary depiction of the small town in two ways. First, the impulse to embrace the novels of the 1920s as a part of the revolt doesn't come from a desire to deride the small town, but rather to deride the facile characterization of that small town. The towns that represented in these 19th century stories were often caricatures, flimsy sets upon which to set redeeming plots. The, the representation neglected the complexity and individuality of small towns. While Van Doren calls his literary trend a revolt, he might as well be saying a celebration of the true complexity of the small town literary landscape. Even Anthony Channel Hilfer, when writing his treatise on the revolt, was careful to subtitle his work, The Literary Attack on American Small Town Provincialism, not an attack on the small town itself. At the same time, however, I think it's also important to note that the rejection of these local story color stories does have much to do with issues of the genders of their authors. Kate McCullough and others have noted how the local color and regional writing created an opportunity for non-traditional writers in the 19th century, particularly women, and thus we see a broader representation of women authors in both local color and regional texts of the era. At the same time, these women writers often had to work well within set, con uh, within set conventions to be published, 
and as such were asked to turn out relative treacle in order to make a living as a writer. In some ways, revolt literature could be conceived as male authorship allowed to come in and upset and really take over what had been staked off as women's realm of village writing. This sound critique, once supported in much more detail in Federley and Price's seminal work, Writing Out of Place, reconsiders how we should think about the revolt texts. But it doesn't question the idea of a revolt. These local color small towns in the late 19th century, while certainly meriting study, were driven to be by beatific by gender expectations of the author and the publishers. An audience wanted positive, uplifting stories in the Midwest, and the magazines provided them. And it's that demand for uplifting local color stories that we should be suspicious of. According to historians and critics, including T. Jackson Lears and Richard Broadhead, local, story, local color writing responded to an increasingly urban readership who longed for something more, quote, authentic, unquote, than the harried movement of the modern urban life. Broadhead notes that while the call for his writing opened up a realm for authors who may well not have had an opportunity to write before, that local color writing itself was in, enacted as a reaction to unease with a new foreign element. As Stephanie Foote argues, quote, regional writing gave strangers with accents literary recognition at exactly the same moment that accented strangers in the form of immigrants were clamoring for recognition and representation in the political arena, unquote. In other words, the idealism of local color fictions worked in the American society as a kind of soothing balm against the problems of immigration, the perceived threat of changing local standing, social standing. While these characters in local fiction had accents, they were also non-threatening, domesticated. So Anderson, Lewis, and Gale were responding to this homogenous vision of the Midwestern small town. Perhaps you could say, that three or four points plotted on a graph don't signal a trend, thus making Van Doren's formulation a, a, a product of his urban imagination. Uh, but it's important to remember that Van Doren didn't orchestrate the popularity of Main Street, or Miss Lulu Bet, for that matter. While Lewis's novel was well-received, Harcourt did little print advertising for the novel, and initially only planned a print run of 10,000 copies. Lewis himself was worried that his novel would be seen as saccharine and as small town fare and, quote, neglected as another magazine-y tale, unquote. Despite these worries, the book immediately became a bestseller, admittedly first in New York City, um, estimates placing 40,000 of the 47,000 copies sold between October and Christmas being sold in the city. But Warren soon spread, and the book was being shipped by the train car load from New York. By April of 1921, Main Street was the number one bestseller across the country, and as Hutchison reports, within a year of publication, it had sold over 290,000 copies. Main Street not went on to not only be the best-selling book of 1920 to 21, but also the best-selling book from 1900 to 1925. Similarly, Miss Lulu Bet was one of the two best-selling books of 1920 and a Pulitzer Prize-winning play in 1921. Um, I will give some credit and power to big city critics and their ability to set tastes, but the sort of reaction that these novels, plays, and films created shows that they were touching a nerve with an American reading public. Which brings me to one of my first complaints about the criticism directed at the revolt theme. 
Much of the work that wishes to undercut the revolt relies upon centering the literary movement as a construct created in the minds of a coastal intelligentsia, colluded upon with authors, transplants now from their Midwestern roots, bitter about their life growing up in the small town, all foisted upon the innocent hearts and minds of an unwitting bourgeoisie, as H.L. Mencken would have termed them. The sales of Main Street and Miss Lulu Bet alone question that reader that the readership was either was unwilling participants or unwilling to participate in the revolt. If readers were willing participants in the revolt, then what are the authors? What if, perchance, the authors were to say that they were not part of such a movement? As Marcia ably points out in her, in her really fantastic history of the revolt in the Dictionary of Midwestern Literature, August Derleth makes this case in his 1963 Three Literary Men, a memoir of Sinclair Lewis, Sherwood Anderson, and Edgar Lee Masters, wherein he takes the words of the authors themselves to protest the idea of the revolt. I find it hard to believe that as teachers and scholars we would rely too much on authors to interpret their own work, especially much, much later in their lives. Reviews, interviews, and letters are of great use in the study of literature, but after all, aren't they appendices to the study of the text? As I tell my students in my intro classes, I don't care what the author says. What does the text say? Take, for example, these words about an author's uh, village, about an author's youth in his village in Indiana, uh, Illinois oh, no. boyhood. Yeah, sorry. Hope was a church, a school, a blacksmith shop, one store at first and two after a while and ten houses. It lay at a crossroads on the slope of a terminal moraine in the middle of a prairie. Most of the men saw each other most every day at the store, the blacksmith shop. The children went five days of the week during nine months of a year to school, and everybody met everybody else at church on Sunday. Although the village was a bare crossroads in a cornfield, it was also the heart of a community, with the bones, flesh, blood, and nerves of any community. Any community is a world. This somewhat idyllic vision of the small town was written in 1939 by Carl Van Doren in his memoir, An Illinois Boyhood. If the man who coined the term revolt can't be trusted to be consistent about a revolt, who can? The idea that an interview, a letter, or a simple discussion of a Midwestern author can be used to support the idea that the revolt was exaggerated or simply didn't exist is problematic. As Donald Pizer demonstrates in his collection of Hamlin Garland's early radical writing, authors' views change over time, and as happened with Garland, become more conservative. Garland's populist-leaning writing of the 1880s and early 1890s had little to do with the mountain romances he would write between 1898 and 1916. And even authors cited as counterpoint to the revolt, like Ruth Succo, were much more amenable to the cause than it might seem. In her essay on Middle Western literature, Succo reflects on the great works of Midwestern literature at that point, including Huckleberry Finn, My Antonia, Main Street, Winesburg, Chicago Poems, and Main Traveled Roads, noting that within the works, quote, meagerness, barrenness has always been the critics' complaint against American life, I'm afraid the Middle West most of all. And of course, it does have, like all provincial life, its deadly Main Street side. But one thing that suggests the vigor of the list of books I've just mentioned is its variety. They are all quite different, but they are all Middle Western. The kind of diversity that Suko celebrates is not the kind of diversity that would be found in prevalent local color work. She argues that the best of Midwestern literature, much of it falling in the school of the revolt, was complex, ambiguous, and problematizing in its representation of the Midwest. 
For those who resist the idea of revolt, it's anathema that the East Coast intelligentsia would seize upon the complexity of the small town and air its dirty laundry. These defenders of the Midwest heap blame on Van Doren or H.L. Mencken for their lack of understanding of the complexity of the Midwestern vision represented in the revolt texts, sometimes viewing the city, particularly New York City, as the Midwestern village and the Midwestern village is somehow at war. Epitomizing this view is Barry Gross, who, after cataloging the sins of New York authors and critics and their opinions about the Midwest, goes on to castigate the holes of the city as a cesspool back in 1977 when the article was published. Gross says, quote, There are many, in fact, who gloat over New York City's current crisis as the comeuppance it has long and richly deserved. Proper punishment for its sophistication and snobbishness on one hand, its historic role as cesspool of races and religions, colors and creeds, crime and corruption on the other. It has come to symbolize all that is quote-unquote wrong with America, and that is worst, all that is worst in 20th century modernity, unquote. The thrust of Gross's essay is that the revolt exists, primarily Main, Main Street, do more than simply show that the Midwest village is stultifying. But its conception of the city as some kind of horrible alternative to the Midwestern villages, if the two were set in, in opposition, is troubling. John's recent study of the Midwest, the genesis of which is, was presented at this conference and published in Mid-America in 2013, is more reasoned and incredibly well-researched. Um, and it follows, <laughs> it follows the same coastal, but it follows the same coastal intellectual elite versus Midwestern town dichotomy. Washington Post reviewer Michael Durda sums Lauk's argument in his recent book, From Warm Center to Recent Edge, by saying, quote, the Heartland's traditional values of hard work personal dignity and loyalty, and, and the centrality it grants to family, community, and church. And even the Jeffersonian ideal of a democracy based on farms and small landholdings, all these came to be deemed insufferably provincial by the metropolitan sophisticates of the eastern seaboard and the lotus eaters of the west coast. This vision, unquote, this vision posits intellectualism, the eastern sophisticates, as somehow snobbish and urbane, or spacey in the terms of Californians. Um, conversely, seeing the small town as simpler but more virtuous, an assertion of the revolt authors were attempting to complicate. As if critics, as, a, as critics, if we don't want the village to be presented as a caricature, then it might be a good idea not to simply stereotype urban scholars, many of whom, like Van Doren, were born in the Midwest. Many studies of the revolt attempt to make sense of the dissonance of reception and interpretation surrounding key revolt texts. Marcia Noe's excellent entry on the revolt in volume two of the dictionary, one that should be required reading of anyone talking about this critical frame, notes the relative lack of consensus on what the revolt is and does, and then goes on to implicitly ask, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing in this. You are not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how a critical construct that is so ill-defined can stand. As part of this line of discussion, Noe discusses the, the conflicting readings of Weinsberg from two noted scholars, David Anderson and Anthony Hilfer. Viewed in this way, revolts become a Rorschach test, one where revolt texts become a Rorschach test, one wherein the reader or critic sees either butterfly or beast depending on their personal tastes. I understand the argument here, but I also wonder if there are many truly literary texts that don't reflect this kind of dispute in both critical and reception circles. Certainly, the work of Jonathan Franzen evokes this kind of bifurcated response in readers. 
Critical consensus generally only comes in case of a fixed and well-defined interpretive community, as Stanley Fish would term it. And the real question we have before us is what sort of bounds we want to put on our literary community in terms of the revolt texts. If we follow from this oppositional construct of the intellectual urbane critics controlling the vision of the small town, then we as critics buy into the simplistic construct of those towns as helpless, the Midwest being subjugated to the cultural elites of the urban centers. To see such characterization, however, is to embrace an idea where the Midwestern small town residents, rubes as they may be presented as times, are in any way suffering under colonial do domination. To construct white Protestant communities, un constructed under governments of primarily white men, communities that elected presidents and controlled electoral politics as somehow the victims of urban intellectuals is absurd, particularly as any child from Ohio can tell you that eight U.S. presidents elected between 1840 and 1921 were born in Ohio. Was the region ever culturally marginal, really? Perhaps the best critique of the revolt comes from good or careful readers that recognize within Anderson's, Gales, and Lewis's, and recognize the good within Anderson, Gales, and Lewis's depictions of the small town. George Willard likes the people in Winesburg, surely they say. Zona Gale wrote volumes of Friendship Village love stories. Even Red Lewis balanced Carol Kennicott's withering depiction of the ugliness of Gopher Prairie with the following chapter from the viewpoint of B. Sorensen, who, in coming from Scandia Crossing, sees her new town as grand, even elegant, saying, quote, what did she care if she got paid $6 a week or two? It was worthwhile working for nothing to be allowed to stay here. These positive representations don't mean, however, that there was no revolt, but only that these were good books. Tom Lutz theorizes that his, this balance of perspective, what he calls a cosmopolitan vista, is a literary strategy that holds two elements in opposition, creating sympathy within the reader for both poles. Regional narratives, he posits, seek not only to represent the hinterland of the rural, but also to value the perspective of the urban, creating a third cosmopolitan perspective that values both urban and rural. As he explains, quote, what these narratives offer again and again is a third term, a vantage point from which these distinctions represented are erased in favor of a cosmopolitan ethic, which usually represents and disrespects both poles. These texts promote a superior cultural position that transcends difference and dismisses difference as atavistic. The joy for the reader, or the literary experience of the text, emerges through this kinship with the author in recognition of a perspective wider than the play between poles. And it's this play between negative and positive portrayals of the small town, the two contained within a single narrative, that made the revolt texts literary, that made the small town worth reading about again after a half century of simplicity. And as the revolt texts recognized the fullness of perspectives of the small town, they also began to represent the underrepresented, championing, championing voices which had been overlooked or ostracized. In Hands, Sherwood Anderson gives us an understanding and even tender representation of Wing Biddlebaum, a schoolteacher whose passion for his boys is misinterpreted. Even as Anderson provides the image of an angry father beating Wing with his fists, a lynch mob stopping short of stringing him up for an imagined offense. 
Anderson recognizes the kindness, kindness and passion in Wing, but he also shows it within a man crushed by a stultifying town. In Miss Lulu Bet, Zona Gale's unmarried title character is left with little choice but to live under the careless demands of her sister Ida and the blustering whims of her brother-in-law Dwight. But Gale is also careful to write real affection between the sisters in the novel. The complexity of the sisters' relationships makes Bet's situation more tragic and her eventual bid for freedom less easy and more conflicted. And in Main Street, when Miles Bjornstrom's wife B and son Otto come down with typhoid fever, Will Kennicott doesn't hesitate to come to their aid immediately and competently, even agreeing that Carol should serve as a nurse to the family. But this competence is balanced with the fact that B and Otto get typhoid from bad water, water Bjornstrom resorts to using because he's kidded relentlessly about getting free water from a cleaner source, even though he offers to pay for it. Lewis never portrays Will as anything but a good doctor and a good man, but that does not erase the fact that Bjornstrom walks alone to the funeral of his wife and child, right down the center of Main Street. In each case, the revolt texts creates place and feeling for the outsider, a passionate, misunderstood oddball, a woman, an immigrant. The revolt gave a place for these outsiders within a complex, sometimes beautiful, sometimes stultifying small-town landscape. That complexity made for great, important novels. The anti-revolt, as it might be called, with its celebration of the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer and an idyllic pastoral lifestyle, falls into the danger of presenting an unquestioned village landscape. In submitted, subsuming the revolt in the revolt texts, we run the risk of following the reactionary path of John Crow Ransom and Robert Perrin Warren in their attempts to solidify the South and the literary imagination with the other angry Southerners and their work, I'll Take My Stand, the South and the Agrarian Tradition a book that in championing the agrarian lifestyle in the South ignores the ills of sharecropping, largely forgets or forgives the trauma of slavery, and longs nostalgic for a perfect past that never existed. As Roberto Dionato has argued, while regionalism is sometimes posited as a counter-hegemonic force to nationalism, unquestioned regionalism acts just the same as nationalism in that it conceives of regions as whole, unquestioned, and not in dispute, thus walling out dissenting voices and unwanted bodies. When regionalism is unquestioned, Dionato posits, it becomes reactionary. Quote, this is, after all, the reactionary trait of the literature of place. It tries to take the question of identity away from the space of politics, away from the space of negotiation. It imposes identity as rooted absolutes and fosters what Adorno calls a jargon of authenticity. But this time, against itself and against its own passionate affirmation of multicultural peace and harmony." Unquote. In imagining the Midwest as anything but contested, the troubling presence of homogeneity rears its ugly head. As Dionato posits, while regionalism has long been considered an antidote to nationalism, the work, as the work of the 12 Southerners shows, the idea of unquestioned regionalism, one that forgets about the political struggles and strife of place, can itself be used to promote a political agenda. What is Trump's slogan of make America great again if not a celebration of an uncomplicated past that never was? Rejecting the revolt as an idea instead of complicating it means effectively walling off the critique of the Midwest, minimizing the struggles of those who did falter within small town life. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 1930, Sinclair Lewis said, quote, in America, most of us, 
Not alone, readers alone, but even writers, are still afraid of any literature which, not a, which is not a glorification of everything American, a glorification of our faults as well as our virtues. To be not only a bestseller in America, but to be really beloved, a novelist must assert that all American men are tall, handsome, rich, honest, and powerful at golf. <laughs> that all country towns are filled with neighbors who do nothing from day to day save go about being kind to one another. And that although girl, many American girls may be wild, they change always into perfect wives and mothers." Unquote. In laying aside the revolt, we risk returning to this pleasant but bland imagined America. We condemn ourselves to a constructed theme park reality and a conception of the Midwestern small town. And as our president would suggest, we wall out difference under the guise of keeping ourselves safe. In neglecting the importance of the revolt, we risk again the idea of making concrete an uncontested past that never existed, one that didn't consider the experience of immigrants in small towns, of women in the home, of oddball individuals in the small town. These varied ex experiences, ones that were as prevalent in the 1920s as they are today, need representation. Forgetting them is building a wall against the difference that has always pervaded the Midwestern small town, attempting to wall off the multiple viewpoints that have always been a part of the Midwest. It's tempting to want to see the Midwest as homogenous and kind, but in doing so, we neglect the diverse and sometimes hard experience that is the Midwest. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, I don't know how to respond, so I'll just let you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, appreciate that. I'll just make a few remarks, pass it off to uh, Marsha, and I'm sure there'll be um, lots of other people that want to weigh in on this question. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your term as president of the Society for the Study of Midwestern Literature. Um, it was a very peaceful term. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember any major scandals or revolts or anything like that. No walls were built. Yeah. No, it's true. I can't remember your campaign promises, but I'm sure you lived up to them. Um, I also wanted to make a general comment about the importance of this panel. I uh, went home to read your, or went back to the hotel to read your paper last night and was thinking this kind of debate and dialogue is extremely important. A couple of years ago, um, um, Richard White, who was, has been president of the Organization of American Historians and the uh, American Historical Association in the past, uh, he's at Stanford now, but a few years ago he tried to launch this initiative at the OAH where he would get prominent historians to come together at major conferences and debate interpretive questions. Mm -hmm. And he tried like 10 different variations of this and he said, no one would ever accept because there was this extreme fear of you know what what might happen something could go wrong there'd be bad blood or people would yell at each other or something but that's very unfortunate because that's the best part of a conference when you get actual um, clash and discussion of interpretation so hopefully we can keep this going and i think the whole question of the revolt from the village is really inexhaustible in terms of uh its variations and various angles and the players in that debate. So uh, congrats to you and thank you for setting up this, this, um, this panel today. One other thing I would say uh, before making more specific comments is my interest in this kind of came out of um, a historical perspective. Um, I have taught the American History Survey dozens of times, which means 
for the uninitiated, um, basically a survey of American history to 18, from 1865 to the present. And it usually ends around the 1960s because you kind of peter out at the end or lose track of time or don't plan very well. But so I, I have covered this chunk of time many times. And uh, since I'm interested in the Midwest and intellectual history, et cetera, I did set aside you know, 15 minutes in that series of survey lectures to talk about the revolt from the village. And for many years, I taught the revolt from the village from the perspective of uh, Van Doren in 1921 or so. And I think that was a huge disservice to my students, but that is usually how it is treated in historical texts. So if you uh, are assigning a history book, a survey of American history, this period of time, if in this event, if it gets covered at all, mm -hmm. is covered in a very cursory way, mm -hmm. a very summary way, and very much from the uh, Van Doren perspective. And you may get one or two paragraphs saying that Sinclair Lewis launched this attack on rural Midwestern towns, et cetera. But it does not go into any detail, and there is no nuance whatsoever. And that's kind of what I was reacting against, because when I was able to get involved in this society and turn to this question of intellectual history, and I began to read down a little bit, um, it, was, it didn't take long before I was thinking, well, this is completely wrong. The, a lot of these people said a lot of nice things about the Midwest, and how I'm presenting this to students is highly distorted. So that's kind of where this project began for me. And so my goal is to um, try and describe this period of time as accurately as possible from a historical perspective. And I think this Van Doren article has greatly distorted, distorted the historical literature in particular. I mean, this is a room of experts. You understand the nuances of this. You've worked on the Dictionary of, Amer of uh, Midwestern Literature. But most people don't get very far into this whole question. So they, they are dealing in the world of stereotypes and short summaries. And that's what I'm trying to mm -hmm. make more complicated. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to reject dissident voices mm -hmm. or shut mm -hmm. down voices that are counter to the dominant narrative or whatever. I'm just trying to get the accurate interpretation of what happened. So um, that's where I'm coming from on this. So a couple points on your, on your arguments. You begin your essay by setting forth what the standard image is of the Midwestern small town. Uh, very much disney as you say. I'm not sure that that is the standard image. I think the standard image is much more complicated, uh, especially in the last 20 or 30 years. I think there's a lot of literature out there that's highly critical of small towns, and I think there is a Hollywood stereotype and maybe a Manhattan stereotype of backward, retrograde, redneck small towns. And I think you see this in a lot of uh, popular literature and popular movies, uh, et cetera. And this whole, this constant discussion of the opioid ep epidemic mm -hmm. in Ohio, for example, yeah, yeah. very much draws on this popular conception of backward, failing, dying, small Midwestern towns. So I don't really think that's the the popular image. One other thing I'd throw out there is uh, last weekend's Wall Street Journal 
had a big essay about the collapse of American small towns, Midwestern small towns. And I think the title of it was uh, America's New Inner City. And inner city was in quotation marks. And it went through this, um, this series of data and arguments and facts about all the problems that are going on in rural America. And this is connected to Andy Oler's work on, uh, you know, rural noir. I mean, this these themes come out of there, I think. So I don't think that's the standard mm -hmm. image. I think it's much more complicated than that. And uh, I was thinking this yesterday when Mark Athatakis was giving his speech. He mentioned, um, even in Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon days, he has a long section setting forth all these criticisms mm -hmm. of... Minnesota's small towns. And also, I think there's a stereotype attached to Keeler that's inaccurate. I mean, it's not correct to say that Keeler is just this apologist for small town Minnesota. It's sure. much more complicated than that. So I think that helps to make my point. Secondly, on the, on the uh, dominance of the local color school that supposedly Van Doren was reacting against, again, I think your assumption is wrong. I think that there was much more complexity to that. I think about Hamlin Garland's early work, which was very critical um, of small towns in the Midwest and farming life and the drudgery of farm women, et cetera. Now, as a side note to that, um, Garland was trying to get published, and his strategy was hey, if I pull back the curtain on how terrible things out are out there in the hinterlands, I can get my work published. So this was a publicity marketing move for him, as Donald Peiser has explained somewhere, and I, I know lots of other people have too. And then later on, he came back to what he thought was the true nature of the Midwest, which he thought was more positive. And that's, that's these books um, you know, that came out in the 1920s. But in addition to Garland, um, there were other people writing against the local color school. Cather certainly was very critical. Um, this how what's what's the Ed, yeah Edgar Howe the uh, who's your schoolmaster Edgar no he's Ed, Eggleston Ed, Edgar Watson Howe Edgar Watson Howe story of a country town That's you're right, right. Yeah. sorry yes so th there's several like that that I think um, make Van Doren's interpretation incorrect. Mm -hmm. But you can see why Van Doren does this. His article is very pithy. It's very smart. You can summarize it very easily. And we'll st we're still talking about it here in 2017. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the point mm -hmm. that I would love to know the story behind the actual writing of that article. Because we've all been there when we have a deadline looming and we're like, <laughs> oh, gosh, I got to get this thing to this editor. What, what should my title be? And he, I bet he just hurriedly put this together. Oh, Revolt from the Village, that's a good title. And it was a great title, because yeah. it lives <laughs> on. It lived, yeah. But I, I question how much he thought through all of this. But the more he can make it a stark break from the past, mm -hmm. the more he can say, ah, all of a sudden in 1920, there's this complete change in the literary trajectory of what's going on in the United States. That makes it a more interesting article. Mm -hmm. If he gets up there or tries to write an article, say, well, there's a few new books out, but they're complex, they're nuanced. It doesn't really change yeah. much what's 
it d- compared to what's been done in the past, that's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that pressure on him. Now, lastly, before I turn it over to Marsha, I just want to directly engage this very important point you make about what the authors themselves are saying. Um, Jeff is very open and uh, honest about this in his paper and in his presentation here today. He says that it's not a wise thing to do for us as historians and literary scholars, etc., to listen to what the authors say about what their work means. I can... I really disagree with you on that. I think this is very revealing. Now, a lot of authors, I will concede to you, probably remember the past incorrectly or they they try and make burnish their image in some way or manipulate the past. But in this case, I think it's different. I really do think this comes from the heart. And I think there was a very... Um, visceral kind of angry response to what Van Doren did by these three authors. And in my work, I kind of focus on Masters, Anderson, and Sinclair Lewis. I mean, you can bring in Zona Gale and some others, but I think the main people are those three. So let me just leave you with this. And uh, the Revolt from the Village article that I did for Marsha, thank you, Marsha, by the way, for letting me use that in this book. But my thoughts on the revolt from the village are chapter one in, in this uh, book that Marcia mentioned this morning came out on June 1st so that's mm-hmm. two days ago from, from warm center to ragged edge the erosion of midwestern literary and historical regionalism 1920 to 1965 by the University of Iowa Press give them a call on their number <laughs> I appreciate that so let me just give you just a couple of lines from this book on this whole question of what the authors themselves were saying and I wish our experts on August Derleth were here uh, Mark and Ken because yeah. this, this is very August Derleth was on to this question Um, And that's why he purposely set aside time to interview all three of these gentlemen, uh, Masters, Anderson, and Lewis, because this had been an issue in the 20s and 30s. And he said, what do you guys think about this interpretation? Does this make sense to you? And he actually did a book out of it. Um, In their conversations with Durleth, the supposed leading rebels all vehemently rejected the village revolt interpretation. Masters professed his love of the Midwest and his boyhood in Illinois. This, by the way, was a major revelation to me because in these survey courses that I talked about, I often mentioned, oh, Edgar Lee Masters published Spoon River Anthology. This was uh, very critical, the Midwest, etc. Just kind of went on with it. Didn't really think much more about what Masters had did or what Masters did the rest of his life. But basically the rest of his life, he wrote, these nice or positive, however you want to say it, uh, pieces about his boyhood and about his uh, homeland in central Illinois, including this really good book about the Sangamon River Valley, uh, which came out as part of the Rivers of America series. And uh, Masters was, um, um, was particularly strident in his denunciation of what Van Doren had did. Um, um, 
Masters dismissed literary critics who promoted the revolt from the village theory as lice. No offense. No offense. <laughs> he said it. I, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Anderson also rejected the view that his characters were only hopeless and defeated and laughed at the revolt thesis. Quote, there wasn't anything to this revolting. I liked Clyde, Ohio. There's no such thing as revolting or rebelling or whatever it is they want to call it. Critics who insisted on giving Anderson's work such a point of view were wrong, he said. Lewis also said the revolt interpretation was unsound. Quote, one of those theories put forth by critics who thereafter tend to look away from any evidence to the contrary, unquote. Lewis dismissed Van Doren's theories, quote, as unsupported by fact. The trouble with critics is that they like to create a horse and ride it to death. That's from Sinclair Lewis. I think that really summarizes it well. This theory of the revolt from the village has kind of gone on way too long, but it's so easy to teach. It's so um, nicely stated. It's such a tidy argument that I think that's why we keep, why it stays alive and why we keep engaging it. Enough from me. Uh, thank you again, Jeff, for bringing all this up. Let's turn it over now to Marsha Noe. Thank you, John. First, I'd like to congratulate Jeff on a very fine paper, which seems to have been de remarkably developed overnight. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not quite the version I have. Uh, uh, always developing, I'd all like the time. To, uh, point out, I hope we do go on to do a revolt from the village miscellany, uh, possibly in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of the Van Doren essay in uh, 2020 or 2021, and invite other people to contribute to this. I'd like to point out that although he mentions me frequently in his text, he did not cite me in his work cited. Not yet. It's there now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just, just pointing out. Yeah. And also, I never before today conceived of the revolt from the village as a way to resist Donald Trump. <laughs> Does the indivisible movement know about this? Maybe they should. Um, but um, I certainly don't disagree with uh, Jeff's argument that the revolt from the village is a literary construct, uh, as he discussed, mentions on uh, in, early in his essay. Uh, this is precisely the argument I'm making in my DML2 entry on the revolt from the village. What I disagree with is his claim that the revolt is, quote, largely forgotten in the general discourse. Although the name Carl Van Doren may not be recognizable to the general public, uh, nor the phrase revolt from the village itself, its spirit lives on in the popular term flyover country. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, and I don't have the exact quote here because I was writing this at 2 o'clock this morning. I can do better if we do decide to publish. Uh, the mark of a mature mind is the ability to hold two opposing ideas uh, in one's head at the same time. Uh, and a great example of this is the way that the no notions of the American small town, and in that the Midwestern small town, uh, live on in our cultural consciousness. Uh, Jeff is absolutely correct to assert that the Disney-fied Main Street, uh, Meredith Wilson's River City, Iowa, also you might mention uh, Bye Bye Birdie's Sweet Apple, Ohio, mm -hmm. uh, Thornton Wilder's uh, Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, although that's not Midwestern, mm -hmm. although people have written articles saying it is Midwestern, even though he put it in New Hampshire, he was really putting it in the Midwest. 
and my personal favorite, uh, the Gilmore Girls Stars Hollow, Connecticut, uh, continue to be a potent cultural reference of the idyllic small town, uh, you know, right up to the uh, last year, 2016's Gilmore Girls re uh, reboot. But uh, right alongside these iconic representations exist equally potent uh, and long-lived notions of middle America that evoke the revolt idea. Uh, will it play in Peoria? The old lady in Dubuque. Uh, Harold Ross, the first editor of The New Yorker, said he wasn't editing the magazine for the old lady in Dubuque. Uh, Ernest Hemingway reportedly said that Oak Park is a place of broad lawns and narrow minds. You know, we could go on with this. Uh, in a classic essay from uh, an earlier, early mid-America, and I don't have the uh, citation right here, uh, Margaret Stewart illuminates this double-sided nature of the small town in the Midwest and her concept of the safe Middle West, and that's the title of her article, uh, The Safe Middle West, and it goes on from there. And it's in one of the uh, Mid-Americas, and I would highly recommend it as a very uh, important article in our critical canon. Uh, she examines the double-edged nature of the term safe, uh, saying that a safe place can be at once a place of refuge and a place that's stultifying and confining. And she applies this to the Midwest and its literature, and she gives three main examples, one of which is The Wizard of Oz, and I'm not, uh, the other two aren't coming to mind here. But again, we can look these up. A literary example of this paradoxical notion of the Middle Western small town can be seen in the oeuvre of Wisconsin native Zona Gale, whom Jeff cited frequently, uh, and talks about uh, in, both in the paper and the talk today. Uh, if you've read uh, any of Zona Gale's Friendship Village stories, you know that she constructs the kind of idyllic small town uh, where nobody's sick and nobody's poor and everybody takes care of everybody else and the women seem to run the town although they never have they don't really have any names there are Mrs. Postmaster Jones and Mrs. Dr. Smith and Mrs. Lawyer you know McGillicuddy and but they they control the, the social and cultural life of the town and they make sure that uh, it's that it's a nice place to live also uh, as Jeff points out uh, Zona Gale wrote uh, Miss Lulubet and also a novel that's less known called Birth, where we see a grimmer, narrower, less appealing vision of the Midwestern small town. In short, I'm arguing for the both and rather than the either or here. Uh, the Midwestern small town can be seen to be both an idyllic and confining, a place of both uh, refuge and escape. And I think Jeff makes a good point about positionality when he talks about how B. Sorensen, the Scandinavian maid, and Carol Kennicutt, the, the doctor's wife who's uh, from Minneapolis, view, uh, view that little town, uh, what Sock, not Sock Center, what, what's Gopher it? Gopher Prairie. Gopher Prairie, mm -hmm. in radically different ways with um, Carol, uh, coming from Minneapolis, sees it as this horribly culturally deficient miserable place. B, coming from the country, sees it as a metropolis bursting with wonderful things uh, to see and do and buy. Um, one of the articles that I think, uh, I'm sorry, books that Van Doren mentions 
uh, briefly in his article is Floyd Dell's Mooncalf, a novel that was published also in 1920 with Main Street. It was not the enormous bestseller that Main Street was, but it did so well and was well reviewed and is really considered his best novel and uh, is very positive about uh, Port, he calls it Port Royal, it's Davenport, Iowa. Uh, and uh, Floyd, uh, Floyd Dell's uh, character is Felix, uh, Felix Fay, is in much the same position as B. Sorensen. Uh, Dell was born in Barrie, Illinois, and then the family moved to Quincy when he was a, a lad and to Davenport when he was a teenager. And if you're coming from Barrie and Quincy, Illinois, Davenport is a cultural mecca. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're coming from Chicago, it's a miserable place to be, although it certainly had many more cultural amenities in Dell's day than it does today, let me tell you. But, so I think po positionality is, is part of the complexity. You know, how do we view uh, the Midwestern small town? Well, from what standpoint are we viewing it? We can see that in a number of the characters in these, these novels. Uh, and I think this this uh, idea that the Midwestern small town can be seen to be both idyllic and confining, a place of both refuge and escape, is a complexity that is part of its appeal. And the reason that we're still discussing the revolt from the village nearly 100 years after Dan Van Dorn um, published his seminal essay, as, as John has noted. Thank you, Marcia. Uh, before we turn it over to Jeff uh, for a response, before we uh, hear from folks in the audience, let me make two final points. First of all, uh, Jeff kind of uh, um, connected me with Durda's Michael Durda's commentary in the Washington Post. Don't blame me for Durda. Uh, that that's was true. his. That's, that's true. That that's was his there. summary. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think he kind of fell into Van Doren territory, mm -hmm. making very gross generalizations of things. So, that's uh, you'll have to argue with Durda about that. <laughs> the last thing I was going to say is that what's very troublesome to me about the revolt from the village interpretation is what it excludes because there was a wide variety of additional writers who are very active during this period of time. But if all you do in your class outline or in your lecture is talk about Masters, Anderson, Lewis, you forget all of these lesser known uh, yeah. people who were active during that era. And that, that includes Suko and John T. Frederick and people like that. And if and that's chapter two of uh, of of warm center to ragged edge. But if you really want to get into the details, uh, Tricia Oman's new book from Hastings College Press uh, goes through many of these other regionalist writers from this period of time that are forgotten or excluded by the revolt writers. This is and the Midwestern moment. Right. Let's hold it up. Yeah, just so everyone knows. <laughs> brand new, literally off the press last week from Hastings College Press. The book is entitled The Midwestern Moment, The Forgotten World of Early 20th Century Midwestern Regionalism, 1880 to 1940. Anybody else have a book they want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll keep my response short because I think... Uh, uh, you know, John's and, and Marsh's responses are, are well-founded, and certainly I don't want to say that this is some sort of settled space. Um, I, I do want to address uh, maybe just sort of two quick things. Um, one is is I completely agree. Um, if you want to read my entry in 
DML2 on the small town, that the history of revolt from the small town is, is, is long and storied, and uh, we're going back to how, and I, I agree completely. Um, I would say that these are all, uh, and this gets at really the, one of the core tensions that when I started thinking about this and writing about it that I, I had a trouble with is that you're right that, that Garland writing, uh, Garland had negative reflections of the small town, that, that, you know, that there are, that it's there for a long time and continues afterward in, in interesting ways. The revolt is deep. Those are all male authors, though. Um, the stuff that I'm talking about, I think that the stuff that Dan Doran is referring to is a uh, hundred or perhaps even a thousand female authors who might have written one or two stories in popular magazines, some of which might even be lost now, um, but they filled the mailboxes of people across the country. Um, the, conf the, the conflict, and I think I want to respond to to Marcia here is that those stories are worthy of study. I think they are tougher to teach in some ways because you have to work hard to find the resistance and the difference within them, and it is, it's hard going. Um, it is there. I'm not saying that local color writers are not worthy of study or that they're not interesting. I just think that if I'm going to teach something about this true tension, uh, Main Street is better in some ways. Um, Zona Gale is better in some ways because it's it's all right there. Um, but I, I I do think that that's that's a good critique, and it's part of the way I, I sort of struggled with myself as I'm writing this essay because I don't want to just say oh local color was crap. It's just it's it's just flatter um, to me than what's going on with the revolt. Um, and then I, I think I'll, I'll address John's second second point too before I just sort of open things up for questions. Um, is is well, I'm not sure which point it was, but the the I, we can have a long talk about Frederick and the Midland at some point if you want, Suko, but uh, that that would spend all our time. Um, but the the question of the contemporary the two visions of the small town today, right? The uh, the idea of the opioid epidemic and the idyllic small town. Um, and I guess I would say you, I, think, I think that you're true, that you're right that both of those are there. But I also think that you have to think about the opioid epidemic Main Street is a veneer that's on top of everyone's vision of Disney. In other words, part of the reason that we see and we're so troubled by the presence of opioid addiction, or if we go to my Main Street, Garrettsville, which I can walk to a block from my house. On one hand, I've got an antique store and a coffee shop. On the next street is the, is the uh, Silver Creek Saloon, which is uh, largely peopled with alcoholics and, and people who are out of work from our local plant. They're right next to each other on this street. I don't think that those two things should be troubling to have next to each other, but I think this idea that there is Disney out there always lurking, our perfect vision of Main Street, is part of what makes us unable to see the, the complexity. In other words, it makes any sort of problem look worse. I, I, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the ideal is more pervasively troublesome than a reaction to the ideal. Um, but that, that doesn't mean, I, I guess, you know, your, your point is, is well taken. Um, I'd also like to say, too, you're right about Garrison Keillor, but I, I think yeah. the reason people tune in to Garrison Keillor is because they want the comfort and the voice and that sort of ASMR experience, which is kind of weird. Um, but, I, I also, um, but I also think that he, he is much more complex 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's people's what people what people are looking for. Um, so I hate to, to cap this. I'm sure there'd be more, but I also want to bring in um, questions from the audience. I, I I would hope too that if we do we want to continue this on the podcast. Uh, on it. So maybe what would be a good idea is, is if if you have a question, you can kind of come up, and that way you'll be on the record. Um, and and so we'll move forward. Does anyone want to start questions? I think if you just speak loudly, oh, you should be good. Okay. All right. That's great. Sure. All right. Okay. Uh, I saw a film class after about five weeks ago called The Perfect America. It's based on a kind of hybrid novel biography of Walt Disney. Very, very well researched. And film class took it over. He wrote the Walt Disney anguish efforts to recreate a town in Missouri that wasn't there and perfect the town. Second is an unrelated point, but as, as I heard you go through the canon, Anderson, mm -hmm. Masters, uh, oh, uh, Gale.
just piggyback on what Patricia uh, was talking about with respect to your mm. conception of local color in your mm. paper. Take another look at Federally and Price because mm -hmm. it's a little more complex than that. Oh, and, certainly, yeah. And they talk about how local color is primarily a man. I know there were lots of women mm -hmm. writing, and Kate Chopin did mm -hmm. some local color, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. But uh, they posit regional writing as a feminine tradition in which yeah. the writer is situating herself within her locale and mm -hmm. writing empathetically about her characters mm -hmm. and her place as opposed to local color writers who are kind of conducting a literary tourism mm -hmm. uh, you know they're outside they're not they're making fun of the people they're saying look at the look at the cute quaint cages mm -hmm. don't they talk funny yeah don't they yeah. dress funny and regional writers don't do that they're trying to elucidate the complexities of the region no yeah and I, I agree I mean I very much shorthanded what is an important and long work in terms of writing out of place. But I, I also think they have they have difficulty in, in that case in terms of how they deal with Charles Chestnut and 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 male authors who they feel fit into the regionalist yeah. construct um, because they they have trouble I think dealing with gender and race at the same time. But it, it doesn't make the, the reading less valuable. But you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I, I used it as a course text this past semester and was amazed at how many problems I found with that book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not that I want it. I think their central thesis is fine, but yeah. um, they're working so, so hard to prove that they can be theoretical, theoretically informed scholars and piss with the big dogs. That, mm -hmm. um, they obscure their text a lot of the time. And well, and I, I think it's important, too. just screw up your podcast by oh. saying piss. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to need an explicit thing now. Ah, uh, explicit label. And here we warn the audience. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it, it's it's telling that when you look at works on regional uh, literary criticism on regionalism, uh, they oftentimes run into this sort of self-contradictory framing. Um, I, I think Stephanie Foote is one of the only critics that I think is pretty clear and and straightforward in what she does. Almost everybody else runs into some sort of critical contradiction with themselves at some point in the book because it is so tough to encapsulate what's going on in these texts. And when you formulate any kind of hard rule, it begins to back up against itself really quickly in, in interesting ways. Yeah. federally in price and I th think another major contribution is making this distinction between empathetic and inside narration and ironic and outside narration mm -hmm. and that's the clearest distinction I've seen between local color and regionalism ever and most before, before federally in price a lot of people just tended to use those terms interchangeably mm -hmm. and they made a real contribution there but mm -hmm. we're probably getting off the point here. Well, I, I Mm -hmm. 
That's a brilliant concept. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it is, and that's another book you can buy. Even the idea of the lost region, I mean, because it's true, but it, if you tag it solely with something like the revolt, or mm-hmm. you, you tag it solely, you're, you're undermining the real issues. Yeah. And I, I think that's hugely problematic for me. No, and I, I, I see exactly where you're coming from, but I think there are almost two, I, I'm trying to think about this from two perspectives, and I, I really like the fact that John talked about teaching right and and I can I can completely see what you're saying about coming in and, and teaching it and having that be the the peg upon which everything is is hung but I also teach in small town Ohio to many small town Ohioans who have very little um, there I, I'm sure there was a day when Ohio students read Weinsberg, but it is no longer the case. And when I when I have them in my intro courses or or my regionalism courses, and I bring up the I, we read um, Lewis or we read Anderson or we read Gale, their response, the the ability to sort of spark passion within their reading when you say, oh, there's this critical construct called the revolt from the village, and it does this, this, and this. The number of stories that students will spin about their own small town experience, um, it creates fire. In some ways, it it is similar in the way I see them responding to the text as, as the bestseller status of Main Street back when it was first published. I am hoping that that is only a first step, and that then you begin to spin out. But as sort of the gateway drug to Midwestern literature, I, I think there's not much better than some of these revolt texts in, yeah, in my and my. Cons-
Mm -hmm. Like the blob in a horror movie, yeah. Yeah. spreading out its tentacles. That would make a great article for the forthcoming Revolt from the Village well, miscellany. I've actually sort of been working on it for the second volume of the Midwestern. One thing I would add uh, is uh, Jeff brought up this question of uh, Van Doren's comments, and I guess it was his autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, I think that demonstrates that his tossed-off construct in 1921 was incorrect. In fact, if you look back at his um, biography, he says very nice things about whatever that town is in Illinois where he Hope. grew up. Hope, Illinois. That's true. And he said, and he said um, in a letter, or I can't remember exactly where this was, he said, I was just bored in Hope. I mean, it was a small town. Most people were farming. Mm -hmm. They had, there were small town merchants. It's not an exciting place. I mm -hmm. wanted to be in New York City. Mm -hmm. That's completely fine. But that doesn't mean Hope is a terrible place. That's right. mm -hmm. Now, the other thing I would add is, we didn't bring this up before, but Van Wick Brooks, in my exploration of where all this comes from was a very direct and important influence on Van Doren. And I think this is where, and I think he says this somewhere, that basically this revolt from the village construct comes from Van Wick Brooks. Well, Van Wick Brooks's couple of books in the teens were very negative, um, as we know. But which, what I didn't know until I started this project was... 20 years later, maybe 25 years later, Van Wick Brooks comes out and says, I was a fool when I wrote all that. I didn't know what I was talking about. I had no conception of American history and literature and my own roots. And all that stuff I wrote in the teens was hogwash. Which really <laughs> validates Jeff's point in his paper that readers and critics and authors change over time mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. And what, you, what you think in the 20s isn't necessarily what you think in the mm -hmm. 50s. Yeah, and, and I would never say that, that, you know, that somehow Main Street should stand in for the Midwest um, forever, right? It's a peg at a moment in time by a particular author meant to do a specific thing and meant in many ways, I would say, to represent the United States at the time. That's what the whole last, you know, part of the novel where she goes to, where Carol goes to Washington and, and yeah. encounters the same environment that she finds on, on Main Street. I mean, it is, in some ways, I think it's uh, next to Babbitt, one of uh, Lewis's more broad broad satires rather than kind of specific satires in other, other cases. So, um, yes. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think uh, Main Street, um, maybe you mentioned this earlier, but it is highly ambiguous mm -hmm. or maybe even 
mostly focused on criticizing Carol. When I reread it mm-hmm. in the context of figuring out this whole debate, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I was struck by the fact that, and I didn't notice it many years before when I read it because I really wasn't thinking about it, but he is extremely brutal on Carol. Mm-hmm. I, it mm-hmm. almost thinks, I almost think that that was the, uh, the purpose of the book in many ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why, you know, I think all of the, the texts that, that Van Doren mentions, though, have that sort of rich complexity. And I think that is in, it's, it's implied in what Van Doren is saying in his original essay. It's, it, it, I, and I, I, I guess I'll agree with John in the long term that, that it is it, the shorthand, the shorthand version of what the revolt is maybe gets read and I, and so your your construct is correct but it's it's sort of the simplistic definition rather than the the rich definition of what revolt texts really are and I, and I, I do too worry that you know if we uh, if we don't still use the term if we don't think about it if we don't have that as a part of our literary understanding of what's going on we also lose a way of communicating beyond I, I have no doubt that the 120 of us that are here at, at conferences or in the society are going to speak in intelligent ways about the revolt but if we don't keep the term in and keep complicating the term and keep it in action what's going to happen beyond the society for the study of midwestern literature it 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 will only be flat it will only be that we it's our job to keep it as a term in conflict i guess there. 
Yeah. No, no, no. no. But I think it's really yeah. important mm -hmm. you know, that we keep looking at public different angles. Yeah. yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Anything else is just yeah. There's a, a great Stephen. I, th I think one thing we could say, and I, I, I don't know, it's a vast generalization to say it, but um, but in some ways it's a New England tradition. I mean, stemming from Hawthorne, uh, this this idea of the horror in the in the in the small town. This sort of you know whether we go all the way back to witch burning, um, but but certainly King has seized upon it and moved it north. As my wife would remind me, Maine is not New England, um, and but uh, but. Uh, the story that always comes to mind with me in talking about what we're talking about is is uh, Stephen King's The Library Detective, um, which is a story about um, a, a young man who is who is sexually abused as a child and, and represses that memory. But then the sort of this in in coming back to find a book that he has lost is sort of forced to confront that. But it ties to all these ideas ideas of uh, of suppressed suppressed darkness within supposedly happy towns. I mean, the whole point is he's got to make a speech to, I think, the Kiwanis Club or something, and that's why he gets a book on public speaking, um, which he loses and then stirs up ghosts or whatever. Um, but I, I would say, too, in terms of... Uh, we always set horror films where uh, where we find the social construct we want to want to attack, right? Uh, Get Out is a great example of suburbia set as a setting for um, a kind of social construct uh, uh, that we want to, uh, a construct of race that we want to interrogate. The the sort of cabin in the woods mentality too in terms of the idea of the redneck to me is more tied to rural small town and cabins out there where those redneck people will get you. But, or Children of the Corn. Oh, yes. Yeah. In Nebraska, where the guy's driving through all these cornfields and gets lost. Yes. Yeah. 
That's happened to me. <laughs> I got it. It's not a very academic comment, I guess, mm -hmm. but uh, Tom Luntz's comment. Um, the I don't know. It strikes me as a caricature, actually, of uh, um, sort of a culturally elite. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't know where he's from, but of a sort of culturally elite East Coast academic or whatever. He said uh, first he says that you know we have to have this transcendent cosmopolitan. No, 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 no. It's it's well, and I I am oversimplifying what I mean. That is one quote out of a long, long construct that he's got. I think if you read the book, it's a great book, um, and it's his his viewpoint in in my understanding of it really is an attempt to show what. It is a really grand argument that talks about what is literary in texts, and in that way, and I, I know the guy, um, and John's met him. I mean, he is he is uh, believes he has the right to say these things, but he believes the reason literary texts are literary is because they have multiple viewpoints contained within them that are held in opposition, and that we are always torn between them, right? Um, and that the more distance or the more poles that are there. The, the better off we are. We're supposed to like Carol and hate her by turns. We are supposed to, in Hamlin Garland, in the story he uses most often, Hamlin Garland's Up the Cooley, we're supposed to identify with both brothers, um, not just the brother from the big city. Um, and it becomes a way to read all of literature in terms of, is it literary? Is it, the litmus test is, how complex is it? How many viewpoints are in there? How is the reader forced to deal with more than one view? In terms of difference is atavistic, I think he's referring to it in terms of difference is the very core. It's not, it is not in the, in the meaning of that of being difference as passe, or we should forget about it, but difference is at the very core of how we understand, should understand the world, is what I am understanding him doing. I, I looked at that quote for a long time, too, but you know, I think you're right. It's an interesting and problematic. Just to add a footnote, we're talking about Tom Lutz. He was at the University of Iowa for a long time, but went on to found the LA Review of Books, yeah. which is an amazing publication, great mm -hmm. fun to read, very long criticism mm -hmm. in there. And I think he's at UC Santa Barbara now. Yes. Yeah. Look at him. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else want to jump? Yes.
socialists from Vermont, they were the men of the people. Mm-hmm. And the Goldwater girl from Illinois was the elitist. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't seem to uh, push a narrative that, hey, I'm a Goldwater girl from Illinois. Mm-hmm. The Midwest is not, you know, I'm yeah. not. Uh, uh, so um, nobody seemed to push uh, this idea of Uh, yeah, I think I think it's a good point. Um, I I would argue that that whenever of the vague statement "Make America Great Again" was made, it's it's implicit that that Main Street USA is is what what we're talking about, and yet he's able to get away with the non-specificity of that or the problematic side of real problems in small town America or the suburbs or big city America by um, by not by just evoking things so that any any person in the audience responds to in whatever the way they wish. So I think it's an excellent point, and I also think it's a good way to uh, to kind of encapsulate a nice kind of high point to encapsulate our, our argument on. So thank you all for coming and being a part of a great discussion. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.